हेलो एवरीवन दिस इज कथक का चक्कर माय नेम इज प्रमित एंड दिस प्लेस इज डिजाइन टू बी अ सेंट्रल प्लेटफॉर्म टू ब्रिंग कॉन्वर्सेशंस विद कथकर्स अक्रॉस द ग्लोब सो ओके सो हेडिंग रिकॉर्ड एंड देन लेट्स सी okay so today i have with me dr sarika prasad she is a psychologist at fordham university in new york and is a professor of psychology at the city university of new york dr prasad's work focuses on mental health outreach for the south asian and indo caribbean community she develops culturally responsive resources and workshops on parent adolescent communication gender based violence in faith communities and mental health help seeking She also runs an Instagram account doctor, at dr.samosa where she writes on relationship and sexuality issues in the South Asian and Indo-Caribbean community. Sarikari has been a Kathak dancer for 20 years and is a student of Guru Abha Vadnagar Roy. Abha ji com- completed her training in Kathak from Pandit Durgalal and Pandit Kundanlal Gangani and is the creative director of Shijin Dance Center in New York City. Sarikari how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good as well. I'm happy to be happy that we're doing this now. And just to start things off, how has being Indo-Caribbean affected your Kathak training and journey? Yeah, it's been um very influential in my mm-hmm. development as a Kathak dancer. So, um when I started learning, I'm thinking back to when I first started learning from my first guru. Um his name is Asgar ji. Well, it's not my current guru. I learned from him for like 3-4 years. So he also um was he he's also Indian I think he also trained at Kathakendra but um he taught kathak classes very i guess traditionally in that it's mostly speaking hindi uh you know hindi urdu whatever combination and as in caribbean people we actually most of us don't didn't grow up speaking uh hindi or urdu or any Indic languages. Okay. Uh in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. um our ancestors were brought over as indentured servants uh about three generations ago. Mm-hmm. Most of the European uh colonialists kind of forbid us from speaking any Indic languages. Oh. So just being a part of the South Asian classical world meant mm-hmm. that I literally had to learn a new language. Um before I learned Kathak I had learned Bharatanatyam for whatever 12 first 11 years or whatever mm-hmm. and but it had only been from Guyanese women um my family's from Guyana which is a country in the Caribbean so mm-hmm. um I never ran into that issue before but then once mm-hmm. I started to actually uh interact more with people who were from the South Asian community mm-hmm. and uh I I saw that there was language issues or cultural differences sort of in how we carry ourselves how we speak what's considered formal and informal so um it definitely impacted first this feeling of like i know i belong here i belong in this world of kathak i belong mm-hmm. in the south asian classical world because i do truly feel south asian i feel indian mm-hmm. and on the other side it just felt so alien to me and as i continue on in this world it you know kathak is such a big part of me and hindustani classical arts are a huge part of who i am um my friends call me begum jan <laughs> but uh at the same time 
I always feel like there is a little bit of distance in between mm -hmm. me and others in this world, just because I didn't uh, grow up so much with this part of my identity, feeling like, you know, I, I am a part of this community. I can really claim a place here. Hmm. Okay. So, and when it came to say learning that language, was that like exclusively through the classes then for you? How did that work? So mostly, so like when I say language, I mean it in two ways. So literally learning the language. Uh, so my guru also, she speaks also mostly Hindi to me. And she was just like, just learn it. And actually it was a good thing. Because, uh, I, I love language learning. So okay. I enjoyed it. But also um, I, when I was at Columbia doing my master's, I mm -hmm. also t did a lot of study in Sanskrit, Hindi, and Urdu. So mm -hmm. I literally like had to learn the languages and uh, the literature and it, it all made me a better dancer. But on the other hand, I also, it's more of like um, cultural immersion in the community. So we would always go to these, you know, events where we would perform in the community and just having to be around other people and uh, who are only speaking Bengali or only speaking Hindi. I just kind of had to pick it up and the way to stand, the way to kind of like carry yourself around others, you, you kind of absorb it from your uh, surroundings yes so the whole uh, the, that whole thing has been interesting in the sense um whenever you get four or more people speaking the same language in a place and then they start speaking and sometimes there's never that awareness to bring someone in or yeah. sometimes people don't care, but it's usually just a lack of self-awareness. And sometimes they're just lazy, like, because yeah. it's work to switch around for this one person. So, yeah, I've been in some rooms like that. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I try to be aware of it. So, uh, so Sarkadi, given this, that you've had this experience of kind of feeling like an outsider and not always fitting in, how does that affect when you bring in new students or you have people that come to you for training? How does that affect how you teach them? Yeah, good question. So I think when uh, most of our students actually are Indo-Caribbean, so we teach in Queens and uh, usually all of our classes have taken place in the Richmond Hill, South Ozone Park area, which okay. is predominantly Punjabi and Indo-Caribbean people. Okay. So that means most of my students are also Indo-Caribbean and uh, actually Guruji, she, uh, she lived in Guyana for quite a few years and taught in Guyana. So she's hmm. familiar with uh, Guyanese and Trinidadian people as well. But um, I think it has been important for me to meet people where they're at and have an understanding that like, if, you know, sometimes Guruji will speak in Hindi and I'll just be, I'll be like at the side translating, but also the girls know, uh, you know, maybe we need to pick it up. <laughs> they, they like learn along the way. Um, it also means that we have different expectations for how parents are involved. So sometimes in uh, Indo-Caribbean uh, society, there can be expectation that at a certain age, uh, girls should stop dancing. Even I have that in my own family, like past 16, you shouldn't be involved anymore. So hmm. helping. Um, and what age is that? Is that like past high school, past college? When do they want them to stop? Yeah, like sometime in late high school, 16 or 17 years old. So like okay, got you. 
Yeah. They're just like, yeah, just stop this and now focus only on school or just like mm-hmm. consider it improper somehow or something. I don't really under, I don't know. Um, in my family, it was definitely like uh, considered like, okay, everyone needs to learn, you know, dance and music when they're a child or in teenage mm-hmm. after that, it's not important. Like kind of go get married or go get a job or whatever it is. But mm-hmm. yeah. So um just having this understanding that this is sort of a cultural difference. Um, the classical arts are not as understood in Indo-Caribbean culture because we didn't have access to it in the Caribbean as much. Very rare. And so since you said there's a culture of like trying to stop girls from dancing past a certain age, is that something you had to face or go through? And how, what was it for, what was it like for you then? It was. And so um, interestingly in Caribbean culture, uh, because we didn't have much of a link back to the homeland, to mm-hmm. our Bangladesh, Pakistan, wherever our ancestors are from, right. um, religion and the arts sort of became linked. So you go to Mandir and you that also you're taking your dance class there. And it's it kind of interesting mm-hmm. because you're considered more religious if you are also a classical artist. They're kind of linked because mm-hmm. like our link to the homeland was through uh, religion, whether it's Islam or Hinduism, or whatever it is. Right. So um, when I was younger, it was considered like a good thing because my family was more religious. It was considered mm-hmm. a good thing for me to be involved in this. But then uh, when I was around 15 or 16, my family wanted me to stop. And they also no. like, first they posed it as uh, your dance class is place sort of right after or during the time we usually go to Mandir. So you can't go because you have to go to Mandir with us. And then I was like, fine, I'm going to drive myself or I, I'll take a bus or I'll take a train. And um, how, how long was the journey? Like how much would you have to travel for this? Uh, you know, it's, it's, if I drove, um, mm-hmm. so usually Sundays we'd go to Mandir from a really long time. We go from like 8.30 AM until the late afternoon. But okay. Uh, if we were at the Mandir, um, my Guruji's house is driving maybe 20 minutes. But sometimes if I have to take a bus or I have to find another way to get there, it takes me like an hour. Or okay. <laughs> just do it because I loved it so much. All right. So, they, so you said you're going to get there yourself. So then what happened? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it caused a lot of tension between me and my parents. Uh, mm-hmm. Even when I was preparing for my Rangamanj Pravesh when I was, I was uh, maybe 23 or 24. I don't know. Somewhere around that age. But I was... You know, finish a college and everything mm-hmm. a lot of times my parents just didn't understand why do I have to do so much rehearsals uh why am I so involved with this uh I didn't really know any other um people like dancers in the mm-hmm. Arabian community who had done their own bunch probation or even studied Kathak so there was no like precedent for it oh so like so were you one of the first people to do it there or like I don't I don't I think um, so there had been a lot of people, more um, Guyanese women, uh, they do Bharatnatyam and Kuchpuri. Yes. And Arangetrams are done more, you know, this kind of fast food Arangetram style where it's like you graduate I, high school and you do your I don't like I don't actually. What is the fast food I engage in? So I think uh, this is something I talk to my Guruji about a lot, that, okay. which is that, um, you know, the purpose of your Rangamanch Pravesh or mm-hmm. Arangetram would be for, you know, uh, Pratnatyam and Kuchipudi is 
not only to debut you as a classical solo artist and not only to prepare your repertoire, like your classical repertoire, but also Mm -hmm. to show that you are at a certain socio-emotional point of development. Like this is somebody who wholly and fully inside of himself is like coming into society as an artist. And you really cannot do that when you're 16 or 17, at least in my opinion, I know other people see it differently, but because uh, mm-hmm. you you're not emotionally there as a 16 year old, like, especially when we talk about presenting all these different rasas, which are, you know, mm-hmm. part of dance, does a 16 year old really know the depths of their rage or of romance or sexuality? Mm-hmm. They're, they're getting there. They're getting in touch with it, but um, it's usually not until a little later that you're able to express those things as an artist fully. But um, our Rangetrams now and Rangmantraveshes are kind of treated more like it's a sort of graduation ceremony. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought it was. I didn't know it was like for this instead. Yeah. So they're treated more like the gra- a graduation ceremony now. And it's a lot of like people who, when they finish high school, they'll also do their Arangetram or also do their Rangmanch Pravesh. Mm-hmm. It's sort of just like this rite of passage. And then a lot of them just don't return to the art form, honestly. Mm-hmm. That's a good point to jump off to the next one, because that's something I've been curious about. I have some... I have some ideas, but no, I'm not entirely sure because I have seen what you've said where people will do this uh, Kathak really intensely throughout school, high school, spend the last year giving up an entire year of weekends. Yeah. Then get so much and then never come back to it after call when college starts. So why does that, why does that trend happen? Like what gets in the way or is it burnout? What, what have you noticed? Well, I think that a lot of people start it because culturally the beautiful thing about South Asian culture is I think there is um, some importance still given to the arts. They are seen as something maybe a little more sacred or important just for everyone to learn. Um, there, I forgot which show it was, but there was this like TV show um, that was on really briefly. And uh, someone who is not Indian goes to India and they're like, why can everyone here sing and dance? And like, literally it's kind of true. <laughs> that a lot of us grow up learning a little bit of music, a little bit of dance. So I think there can be a bit of a saturation in terms of like a lot of people start learning these things, but that doesn't mean that everyone is like truly interested in the arts and wants to be an artist. That's kind Mm -hmm. of rare. So it's, I think something that we do in our community a bit as a tradition sometimes, but when it comes to like who is genuinely interested in the arts and like sees it as a part of themselves, it's always going to be very few people. So you can so you can get to like a rung month, do an entire solo performance, and then you find out that maybe you weren't all that interested. Okay, honestly, some people out here treat it like they're sweet sixteen, like it's like a big party. Um, you know, it's like uh, this is my debut to show my daughter to the world or my son to the world, and oh. uh, like look at this big celebration that we can plan. It's a, a way for families. Mm-hmm to show off their wealth and it's not even about the like point of the repertoire right okay that okay 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 i'm just like learning a lot right now so mm. that okay that makes sense now huh. yeah. and so when it came to like your rangman Saikadi, were you able to incorporate any aspects of like indo-caribbean culture into it when you were like doing your pieces and things like that anything from the literature or history yes or- 
Um, so in, so I said in the Caribbean, we don't necessarily have too much access to the classical arts, but mm -hmm. most of us are still very connected to folk dance and music. Actually, interestingly, there is a history of um, Drupad, a type of okay. classical um, South Asian vocal style in the Caribbean, not okay. khayal, which is what most uh, Kadak pieces might be based on. But anyway, there is a history of Drupad, there, but more strong history of folk music. So mm -hmm. uh, Tapa, Tumris to an extent, but uh, what we call Betakana in Korean. So um, it is more folk music based, but uh, in my Rangmanj Pravesh, the piece that I did that was, it was sort of like uh, Shringara plus I don't know, some sad girl vibes uh, piece. It was a country, which is, so my family, um, my ancestors are originally from kind of a mix of uh, Bengal and UP Bihar, and Kajri is a, a form of uh, singing from Bihar. Hmm, okay. I have a couple of friends who are in Jharkhand and Bihar, so we are... And when I just want to mess with them, I show them the his, like a history map because Bengal used to be all those states. Right. So I, I just say y'all are Bengalis, just deal yeah. with it. <laughs> just to mess with them. I know it's so interesting because like I know my history is mm -hmm. Bengali, but when I hang out with Bengali people, which is a lot of yeah. my friends, um, I'm just like it is. I guess this is my culture, but it's also not. Like I don't mm -hmm. speak the language, and I don't have these experiences growing up. <laughs> I will tell you this, like, I can speak Bengali, but I didn't grow up in Calcutta. Mm -hmm. So when I hang out with a bunch of Bengalis who've grown up there, I don't really like, I'm like, because they find my Bengali as an accent and all that. So it's like a whole other thing. So yeah, so just speaking the Bengali, speaking Bengali might not get you there. <laughs> so. I think we're both in the technically Bengali, but not Bengali club. Yes. yes. <laughs> like I'll, I'll show up for Durga Puja and like, help out a lot and organize things and I'll vanish. <laughs> That's been my deal. So I'm kind of like segueing into the, like another section now because uh, yeah, I, we've talked a lot about like young munch and where you come from and the culture. So now I just want to talk about like um, the mental health aspect of dances because I wanted to discuss that a bit. So according like to so the based on uh, could you first could you tell us like what kind of services have you offered dancers or what is your practice around dancers based like? Sure. Mm -hmm. So I'm uh, currently at, I work at a clinic mm -hmm. as a psychologist and um, it's a, it's sort of like a we have a, a certain population that we work with which are people who go to Fordham university and also people who go to these different arts institutes that are around the area. My clinic is in Lincoln Center. So there are tons like Alvin Ailey. Um, there are different arts uh, organizations at, uh, affiliated with Lincoln Center. So basically, if you're an artist that is involved in any of those places, you can come to my clinic. So it's like semi open kind of clinic. Okay. So that means that a lot of my clients are people who are um, dancers, actors, um, musicians, things like that. And also I specialize, um, like the clients I mostly see are people of color and people from the queer community. And in both of those groups, there tend to be a lot of people who are artists. Um, like all of my South Asian clients, I would say like 80% of them are involved as a music musician or dancer, and um, 
definitely a lot of people in the queer community I've had who have been dancers or in theater or something. The world I am in, most of the South Asian community is in tech and engineering. <laughs> so there's a whole other world out there where the majority can be arts. It's pretty fascinating to me. Yeah. <laughs> so like your life situation is just a little different. Mm-hmm. So when you, in, in your clientele and the people you've dealt with and the conversations you've had, what are the common issues you've seen dancers have? So if you were to see things like from a surface kind of level, uh, what things appear to be on the surface, I would say those issues would be things like a lot of perfectionism over criticism of themselves, uh, body image issues, uh, could, which could include eating disorders, um, imposter syndrome, this feeling that you know, whatever achievements I have or the place I have in my career or in life, I don't deserve it or I've tricked people into being here. But I would say that when it comes to like a deeper level, so what these things look on the surface might be that, what it comes to on a deeper level is these are issues in relating to ourselves and relating to others. Um, Some might call them codependency issues, but some of these issues, like when when I say common issues that artists have, they might be things like, Um, experiencing appropriate levels of self-esteem and self-worth, setting boundaries with other people, being able to express their feelings in a way that feels comfortable to them, um, taking care of their needs and wants in appropriate ways, and um, like feeling emotions intensely, but to a place where it's still feels healthy and comfortable. So there are plenty of artists who feel feeling so intensely, but it's actually hard to regulate their emotions or some who start to feel so numb and shut off. So really with the, all of these issues I'm talking about, they really come down to some past uh, deeper issues in life, um, having our relationships. But on the surface, it can look like anxiety, perfectionism, overcriticism, body image issues. Hmm. So I'm trying to figure out like the difference between uh, surface and deeper level a little bit. Mm-hmm. So uh, can you give us give, give me give us an example of how like say like say perfectionism or criticism is linked to something deeper? Like can you give us an example of that just to walk us through from surface to deeper? Of course, sure. So let's say um, the, uh, let's say there is a person who is a dancer, right? And, um, they might come to me and say, well. Um, I'm having some issues with um, my weight. I feel like I'm too um, heavy. I'm not muscular enough. I'm not strong enough. Whereas maybe like kind of a normal person looking at them might be like, you look, you look fine. Or maybe their health is okay. They're according to a doctor, they seem to be kind of like fine. Um, They're maybe comparing themselves a lot to other dancers or other people and always just feeling like I'm not good enough. Um, I see this person on Instagram and I'm not like them. I'm not working out as much as this person. I'm not doing Pilates as much as this person. And um, they start to develop maybe uh, dysfunctional eating habits, maybe not eating enough, maybe binge eating. Um, It's also could if even if eating is not involved, so maybe on the surface it looks like just they look in the mirror and they don't they can't see beauty. They look in the mirror and they can't see um, themselves the way they are. And so as you start to ask a little more about, so where do you think this came from? When did you start developing this? They might say something like, "Well, my mom has always been like that. 
to me. My mom has always said, well, um, you know, you're not doing this well enough, or there's always more you can do, or why do you have to concentrate on dance? Why can't you focus on school more? And this criticism from maybe the mother or the father or whoever can get internalized. Also, it can come from the guru. Maybe the guru is like, well, um, always comparing this student to other people. And the student just doesn't know how to view themselves as an individual. They're always like comparing to others. Um, it could be that there were really early experiences with the guru or with the parent or family where um, boundaries weren't respected, where if the student wanted to say something like, hey, I want to skip dance class this week because I want to hang out with my friends. That would be treated like the biggest crime, you know, that they could commit. Like even in America? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, okay. Oh, 100%. Yeah, that was like, okay. that's very common. So huh. basically when it comes down to it, these issues have to do with our early life relationships and also how we continue to relate to ourselves in these dysfunctional ways. But on the surface, you know, the person might come in and say, the only reason they notice something is wrong is because, well, maybe I'm feeling a little anxious. Sometimes I have stage fright. I, um, you know, I'm having these eating problems. So it's not that those things aren't serious. It's just that usually the issue is something much deeper. understood and when it comes to say like uh, when you're trying to like talk them through their issues or figure like helping them solve what they came for are the system like are the tools that you use from like your, your training uh, is it different for dancers or is it the uh, or yeah i was just wondering about that I would say that I bring a different level of understanding to artists who I work with because I can identify with um, the pressure from a dance teacher. So, for example, um, I had a client who her her dance teacher was uh, so extremely critical, like every week in dance class, they would have to weigh themselves and um, the dance teacher would like criticize them if they're like a pound more or less, even though it, it's just so, it's so horrible, I don't know. So um, when somebody outside of the dance world hears this, they might, I mean, appropriately, sure, they might say this is like horrible, how can a dance teacher do this? And why didn't, why didn't you just quit? Whereas somebody for me who like, okay, someone like me who has actually been a dancer, I understand it's not so easy to just drop out because you love dance. The community you're building from your dance school becomes so important. Um, you know, so I I am using my experiences as a dancer to definitely understand kind of the world of classical arts. Um, on the other hand, I would say when it comes down to it, whether you're a dancer or a musician or whatever, or someone who is not involved in the arts, all of us have these really similar issues in our relationships and the mm. tools of therapy can help you. The regular tools of therapy can help everyone. Because, yeah, uh, like quitting, I understand is, yeah, in the classical arts is trickier. Like you said, smaller community, if you're a backlash, you might think that you may not get that knowledge again ever. And your training's going to stop because it's linked to this one person. Yeah. So... Maybe there's no general answer for this, but w when it comes to see that point where you feel that like someone needs to quit their guru, what are some flags or what are the, some things you've noticed that beyond that, there's no point, it's irreparable, it's not, there's no point reconciling and they should quit. Like what are some 
like red flags in that respect? Sure. So I would say the first thing has to do with um, boundary issues. Are you able to feel safe and taken care of in the relationship? Are you able to express your needs um, appropriately without being criticized or hurt? Are they um, holding consequences over your head Mm -hmm. all the time? So uh, like, for example, if you don't do this correctly, or if you don't do this exactly how I want, you're kicked out or um, I won't talk to you for a week. It also comes down to really having a realistic view of what respect looks like in relationships and not tolerating it even from if it's from a guru. So especially in our culture, I think like there are things that we wouldn't tolerate from a friend. We wouldn't tolerate from a romantic partner. Something like being called names, our time not being respected, just constantly criticizing us or making us feel smaller or inferior. Hopefully we wouldn't, you know, accept from a friend, but from a guru, we just sometimes excuse all of it because um, there is a high respect in our culture for gurus, which is good in some ways. And in other ways, like gurus are humans too. And if they're doing things that are dysfunctional or toxic, uh, they don't, shouldn't get a pass for that. Understood. Yeah, thanks for explaining that and what, you know, I really like what you said about we tolerate certain things from gurus, but we don't tolerate that from other people analyze. It's something I never thought about, but makes perfect Mm. sense. Mm. And you talked about like needs of a dancer. So according to you, what does a student or a dancer need from their guru? Uh, From or not even a dancer. I'd say what classical artists in general need is some space to be able to express themselves and feel what they feel in a way that is appropriate to them. So whether that means uh, if you're learning a romantic piece, you're given space or time to reflect on like, what are these feelings? Have I felt them before? When have I felt them in my life? Um, But also to express it in their own individual way and not just talking the guru. Another thing that we need is warmth, encouragement, and validation, and even affection in the relationship. These are the building blocks of uh, respect. They're building blocks of love, but also these are things that help us develop healthy attachment to good relationships and healthy relationships in our lives. So we need groups to be warm, to be encouraging, enthusiastic even. And I also think we need to um, support artists as people. And let, you know, students understand that as much as you're growing as an artist and there are certain needs you might have in terms of um, practice time, how much time you're putting into riyaz, how much time you're putting into your development as an artist, also respect them as adults and as people. So if someone, a student is turning um, 17 or 18 and they're saying, you know, I need to focus a little bit on college at this time because my career is important, that's okay. You know, you find a way to be flexible. And if somebody is um, at an age where maybe they're thinking about relationships or marriage, that the guru actually can use the art form to help them explore those feelings, but also that people are given space to have their own lives. Okay. So when you say space, is it, it's not like a physical stage or a platform, right? Or is it just like letting them be their own thing? What does space mean in this context when you say space to express themselves? 
It could mean, so when someone has space to express their feelings, Mm -hmm. what that could mean is if there is a day, let's say you show up to class and you're just feeling down, you're feeling sad, the student feels, first of all, safe enough to say that, to say to the guru, listen, I'm not feeling well today. And the guru has an answer for that, which is either okay, let's sing this. And singing is going to help you feel less anxious. Or do you want to just sit and listen today? Do you want to sit and watch? Or, um, you know, this feeling of sadness, I think is something we can work with, especially in this piece we're working on. Why don't we explore it and how it affects your portrayal of this character? So it does sort of mean an emotional space, but sometimes it means physical space. Um, I think it's also very normative in, especially for adolescents, that they have a period of time where they experiment with um, giving up things that they like and giving up an art form. So it's very normal for young dancers to have. uh, What what age would you say that happens, the giving up thing? It's, you know, it kind of depends it depends on the person, but let's say I've seen it happen around middle school age. That's between 11 and 13. And then I've also seen it happen in late adolescence between 17 and 20, because these are two major junctures of identity development, Mm -hmm. separation from the parents as well. So, um, also sometimes they need physical space and it doesn't mean that you say, no, well, if you stop now, you're going to like end your dance career forever. Um, or you don't force them to stay. It's just, okay, take the time you need. And when you want to come back, you come back. Or you offer them another option. Like, you know, if you need some, uh, literally some space right now, some physical space, that's fine. If you want to come back to class once a month or just come to my house and we'll talk once a month and just catch up, that's fine too. And this is something I'm curious about because I'm just wondering if this is like more of a what more, more like a common phenomenon or just like a thing i've seen of one person because uh, like so, so there's an incident in my class where um like there's this girl who like uh, so say in that age bracket 12 13 mm-hmm. and i asked her like hey do your do your uh do your friends know that you do kathak and this is indiana so it's a different demographic and she said no i don't so and i was just wondering like is it common for people to like uh like when they are younger to hide that they do a classical art or is, it, is there a sense of shame attached? Have you seen cases like that? I don't, so I was just wondering what's that like? Yeah, so actually psychology has an answer for this. And it's that, um, especially around the, that middle school kind of age, when you're yeah. starting to, first of all, see yourself as an, an individual separate from your family. So who am I as a person? in the development of your identity, you're kind of experimenting with what parts of myself do I want to keep? What parts of myself do I feel excited about? And what parts of myself do I want to let go? Mm -hmm. So some of that experimenting includes stopping things that you might realize later that you loved. Mm -hmm. Another part of that experimenting can be that sometimes we're shamed out of certain parts of our identity. So especially if you grow up in America and especially if you grow up in a majority white area, being South Asian is not seen as a desirable thing. Hmm. So that might mean experimenting with, oh, well, I'm not really, you know, I don't do dance or, you know, lying to people about being involved in South Asian arts or just stopping it because you're afraid of not being cool. Right. Um, but as your identity, you know, you, you start to develop your identity more and figure out who am I as you grow up, you might return to some of these things or return in a different form or something like that. I will say um, that... I don't think I would have done Kathak in school. Hmm. 
but like picking it up as an adult where you pay, you're making the payments and you just decide uh, and not having that pressure of like whether your parents approve it or not is like relieving in a way that i'm just doing this because i can yeah and i think it's i i would say that like starting at 26 it's just easier to have the headspace for it and not have to worry about a million other people so yeah i think that's that's why when we think about teaching children the focus mm-hmm. would be more on the foundations and building blocks of of the arts and also dance which is here's a place where you can just express yourself and if you're happy be happy if you're sad be sad um learning rhythm so they don't have to come out of a class knowing like ashtamangal tal they there's just the fact that they know how to hear a rhythm and stick with it that's going to carry them for the rest of their life and if later they decide to to delve into these art forms more deeply as only an adult can um they will do that but there's so much pressure also on young dancers that oh by the time you're 16 you had would have performed like a, a tumri and all these like a tarana and all these like difficult items when there's nothing wrong with that but at the same time um the focus of education for youth should really be more on social emotional development and also just familiarizing yourself and finding joy in the foundations of the arts Mm-hmm. And before I lose the strain of thought, as an adult novice, what is an Ashtamangal Tal? Oh, uh, it's one of the Tals. So okay, gotcha. <laughs> is it like one of those that's just defined by the number of beats, or is like there's a lot of more to it? Yeah, it it okay. is one of the Tals, but I mention it because okay. it's uh it's a it's a uh, rare one, and it's one that's a little more advanced. So interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. To know. So, Shaikadi, uh, um, I guess uh, talk like. Segwaying to like say we're just talking about teaching kids and like would be good time to talk about Shrijan Dance Center. So according to you, if you you said you need to focus on the foundations of Kathak when you're teaching kids. So for you, what are the foundations of Kathak? The foundations are first of all a Tal sensibility. So being able to recognize Tal. uh which and basically recognize a rhythm. So mm-hmm. a lot of us because we grew up around music or some mm-hmm. of us started Kathak very young, we don't even know that there was a moment where we learned to hear music and know that there is a beat. And that a beat is something I need to follow. We take it for granted, but there are plenty of young children that I work with that um they 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 don't have that sensibility because they weren't taught it. So first of all just knowing what is a beat what does it mean to be on rhythm to catch a rhythm mm. especially the the whole concept of the sum sometimes it takes children years to learn that another would be um introducing sort of the <laughs> form of movement so that means um what does it mean to hold your body in the like kathak stance like a first position starting stance um when you have like your head is is lifted and your shoulders back and your core is engaged and your feet are in a v like things like that so just learning the first position and the way to hold your body like a dancer mm-hmm. um so besides those i think there are more things i could probably mention in terms of technique but aside from that i think it also has to do with um introducing dance as a storytelling a way to tell stories as a way to talk to people about or 
communicate about what you you go through in life. So when we teach children, especially at Shujin, you know, we don't necessarily just say, okay, here's like this legend about Krishna, you're going to perform it. The way we might start it is like, so um, what did you guys eat for lunch this week? Tell me about what you ate. So they'll tell us in words and then show me if you had to only use movements, how would you show me what you ate for lunch? How would you show me what a chocolate milkshake is? How would you show me what, you know, dal and rice is? How would you portray that. So in the language of children and the ways that they understand, they learn to say, oh, like I can communicate these things and how I felt about it through movement. And that's essentially what Kathak is, you know, when we say it's a storytelling dance form. And um, I would you start this like you, you do this for like the beginner classes when they just start out or do you wait a few? Oh, yeah, beginner class. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I think the third part would have to do with emotional so when i said socio-emotional development this also has to do with again the relationship we develop with people as dancers whether they're starting as adults or young people which is to show uh build camaraderie we care about each other we notice when someone shows up to class and they seem anxious we notice when somebody um might be feeling uh like a student looks like they're about to cry when they're going to, you know, do a new tukra that they're not really catching, right? New tukra. Okay. Um, how do you do? How do you deal with that? So some gurus they might see um, someone. It could be a teenager. It could be even a adult or a child, and they're like look really nervous, and and the guru might just say, just keep trying, try it again, or stop, or something. But instead, when we talk about socio-emotional development, it also means saying. Hey, just checking in. How are you feeling? Um, mm -hmm. Why are you feeling that way? What it, What is it about this that's challenging for you? How can we make it easier? Um, finding ways to help them find the steps. Well, you don't have to do the whole tukra now. What if we concentrate on just your feet? Um, and also, sometimes it it the it might be a bigger thing. The the student might say, well. Oh, I just feel like I'm the worst dancer. I, you know, I, I hate the way I dance and I'm not as good as everyone else. And that means having a conversation about, you know, where does that come from? And um, just validating them and telling them, you know, supportive things. Like, you don't need to compare yourself to other people. You just need to be happy with the work you're doing and find joy and meaning in it. That's all that matters. So on that note, when you're kind of instructing and you know, helping your students out. Do you, does like you, the Kathak instructor and you, the psychologist, do they blend into each other when you're at your dance academy or do you try to keep them separate? How, what's your, how do you go about that? Well, I, um, yeah. And actually, in addition to being a psychologist, I also have been a child psychologist and a school psychologist. And I did a lot of my training in educational, the psychology of education and teaching. Okay. It was really okay. hard for me not to bring some of that into how not only I interact with students, but everyone in the world. Like, I'm always like when I listen to people, you know, I'm really listening and I'm really present. And it's hard for me just not to be like that. It's also hard for me not to notice little cues of someone being sad or someone maybe being anxious like I notice these things however I have a very strong boundary between my my different work lives and right. I am not you know I, there's a difference between um validation and empathy that we all should offer each other as people who love each other or people in the world who might not even love each other but we have to work together versus what I do as a therapist and um the technique 
I use that is um, a lot more uh, strategic. Like there's a strategy behind it when I'm in the therapy room versus in the world. There, I have no strategy with anyone. I'm just trying mm. to be nice. <laughs> okay. And um, yeah, I'm, I think I know the answer, but I want to hear from you. So what hap- what would happen if you didn't turn that off? And if you were psychologist Sarika Prasad the whole time, and if Dr. Prasad showed up to the dance centers and that, what would happen? Like, what are the repercussions of that? I would be very tired all the time because I'd be working 24-7. But mm-hmm. also, uh, I think people would hate me because most people, um, most people even who show up to therapy uh, don't want to be understood. People don't really want you to know them. And if you kind of show uh, that hey, I see what's going on with you. And I have some idea of why it might be happening. Um, I'll give you an example. So if somebody I I notice in normal life seems a little bit sad, I might take note of it in my head. If they're a friend, I might say, hey, you're seeming a little bit sad. Um, Do you want to talk about it? Or do you want to watch a movie tonight or something like that? That's how I might handle it with a friend. But with a client, um, I might say, okay, you're feeling sad. When have you felt this feeling before? Um, you know, you, oh, you know, I know you mentioned feeling this sometimes when you're with your, uh, your parents, sometimes after like a a boundary might've been crossed. What do you think that's about? Tell me more. So you're, as a psychologist, I'm kind of trying to help people dig more into the source of issues and it can become very uncomfortable. Whereas a friend, like no one wants to go there with a friend. (laughs) It's interesting. You have like a slightly different inflection of your voice when you're yeah. Dr. Prasad as well. <laughs> I guess it's a good way to discern it in your head as well. Okay. And, uh, uh, yes. Did, did we kind of, Scott, we're just talking about Sri a little bit, but could you tell us a little bit, you mentioned we. So could you tell us a little bit about what Sri Dance Center is about? How many people are there? Students you have? A little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So my guru is Abha Patnagar Roy. Mm-hmm. And she's the one who runs our dance center. Mm-hmm. I really feel we're focused more on developing people as dancers, as humans. Um, we do sh- we do do some performances and shows, but I just feel like our focus is not so much on like when's the next show, when's the next performance, but helping dancers develop themselves as people or as humans and uh, expanding their uh, depth of understanding in repertoire. So what I mean by that is we spend much more time um, helping students kind of like think of well um how do you, how would you make your own uh tukra or how could you spin differently in this part or something like that so how early do you start like questions like that i'm just wondering sorry how early do you start things like this uh from i would say after like a year and a half to two years of training i mean with like a six-year-old you can't necessarily ask those questions it's more of of teaching if you're working with uh, students who are five or six years old like quite young um actually what's more developmentally appropriate at that age is just helping them kind of like tolerate being in a group being somewhere where they have to focus for about you know 45 minutes that's very long actually for a child of that age so sometimes classes are shorter and getting them used to hearing music and stuff so at that age i wouldn't say that but even around seven or eight years old um or someone who has been learning for two years, you can start to just have them 
think flexibly about what they're doing instead of rote learning. Interesting. So there are some of, um, so I think, yeah, we try to focus more on that way of learning dance. And um, also uh, my Guruji is really uh, passionate about folk dance as well. So okay. uh, we, we teach a lot of different types of uh, South Asian folk dance, especially uh, from Rajasthan. So uh, we all have fond memories growing up dancing uh, Ghumar. So when that movie came out with uh, Deepika Padukone and she was dancing with Goomer, we were all very excited. <laughs> nice. So is Goomer like your favorite folk dance or do you have a favorite folk dance? You know, that's a good question. Um, okay, technically my favorite folk dance is Bhangra because okay. it's really fun. No, but we don't teach that really. Oh no, actually we did get that. Anyway, so I would say oh, I, I didn't like Goomer at first because to properly dance Goomer, it, it's a very soft, feminine, graceful, elegant movements. And I couldn't get it at first. I was just, I don't know, I couldn't get it. But now I can do it. I feel like uh, I feel like a beautiful Rajasthani swan. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> no, I was just wondering if there's one in Rajasthan. There probably is one. But, but. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, because okay. yeah, like, yeah, I haven't been there in a while. But sidetracked. And so, and what is the relationship between you and your guru while when it comes to Kathak and running the academy, say? Yeah, um, I'm so close to her and I love her. So (laughs) the way our relationship has always been is that definitely, you know, there is a level of respect and there is, there are boundaries in the relationship. So especially when we started out, you know, I always have, I always have respect to her and um, you know, I've seen her as someone who I am so thankful for the, the privilege of like wisdom and knowledge she gives me. But at the same time, I think also developing yourself as an artist, she always says like some of my best development as an artist has been when I'm out of the dance classroom with my either other peers in dance or with my guru. So uh, we've always had this relationship where after class, anyone who's hanging around, let's go to Guruji's house, have some chai, snacks, she'll make some pakori. And sometimes the conversation has to do with dance and art and expressing yourself. A lot of the times it doesn't. It just has to do with real life stuff. Sometimes it has to do with our thoughts about the dance community or about art. Sometimes it has to do with our relationships and being able to have this social connection with each other has meant that she has not only been a mentor in my life, but also um, she has provided like emotional support for me, for me that I could get from a friend or a mother or something. So her and I are very close and she is, I, I know I'm technically her student, but we're also are like co-creators of art. Um, she is somebody who I think of her like the air element. Um, she has, she's like in this beautiful fantasy like world of art and always coming up with these beautiful ideas. She like can see something in nature, like, oh, you know, Sarika today I saw a tree and I thought of how I want to choreograph this covet or something like that. Um, and she has this beautiful creative mind and I'm the one who I think has more structure. And I'm like, okay, but how are we going to fit this in 15 minutes? <laughs> um, how are we going to make this so actually the dancers can fit it in the choreography? Um, right. This fits with tabla, not pakavaj. So we have like this beautiful creative partnership as well. 
Okay, kind of that kind of brings me to my next question. You mentioned that y'all were y'all are co-creators of art, and you kind of explained who does what. Mm-hmm. You, do you have any examples of like the art both of you created that you're really proud of, and any anecdotes from that? I think that's how we honestly have choreographed like everything for all of our performances. So usually the, the process for us is she'll maybe text me or give me a call. Sorry, guy, I have something to talk about. <laughs> and then I will go over and she'll say, you know, I heard this music. I thought of this idea and she'll share it as a creative concept. And then usually um, the way we work is that even if we're choreographing a group dance, her and I or her and um, there's another senior student, Aman, maybe us three, we will just meet together and she will try out the choreography with me. So she'll come up with some movements. And then I will also say, you know, as the dancer, it's very difficult to do um, like maybe these three chakras, maybe we should do it as two instead. So I'll give my feedback. And then us two or us three will decide together, like, how the choreography will do and then we will teach it to the group and once we start to a larger group um she will give the ultimate kind of like direction of the dance and this is what's being done in this part but i will i think more on a detailed close basis with the dancers so if there's someone who is like really not picking up the footwork i will spend like sort of remedial time working closely with that dancer to get them up to mm-hmm. strength or if i see a lot of dancers are um kind of unhappy with one part of it I'll communicate that to her and say hmm. you know, they're not really liking this part of the choreography maybe we should think of changing it or something like that hmm. the question about this I'm because I've only done one showcase when what when does it happen that a dancer is like not happy with the part of choreography is it like is it too fast for them or is it too slow for them or what is your reaction because Usually, I because I when I do choreography, I just like okay, fine. I just want to finish these steps and performances. I've never thought about like whether I'm happy or unhappy with it. So I was just wondering about that. Well, the thing is with uh, younger, with children and with adolescents, it could uh-huh. be something that uh, it's like a, kind of a normal issue of like a girl being like, I don't want to be a boy in the dance, you know, something like that. In those cases, you just kind of teach, you talk to them about it. You might say, well, sometimes we have to. Perform to be characters or different genders and what would it be like to be a boy and stuff like that. So um, there is some of, sometimes of that, but other times let's say with the older, uh, you know, dancers or adults or older teenagers, um, unhappiness with choreography might be something like, um, you know, the, the choreography is feeling very slow and the whole first five minutes, it feels like it's really not building up. So we might communicate, they might communicate that to me or to Guruji and then we'll, we'll see it with kind of a fresh eyes and think, okay, like sometimes we would agree and say, yeah, like you're right. Uh, it needs to kind of build up a little bit faster before the five minute mark. Or sometimes we might communicate to them and say, well, this is the reason we did it this way. This is the process and this is the character and the story. And this is why. And then, yeah, yeah. we never had any major issues. Understood. Yeah. That's interesting. Like that's something I never thought about. So it's always good to hear those stories. And say so when it comes to like your own practice, what how do you approach Riyas and how do you look at it? What are the things you do usually typically? Yeah, sure. Um I used to hate Riyas. <laughs> so uh I used to I mean especially younger dancers. So when you say used to for how long did you hate Riyas? Um let's see uh for and i'm including my part years in this yeah. 
So probably like the first 21 years of my life. (laughs) I hated it, but I still did it, but I didn't like it. Okay. Because I, I think I understood Riaz more as like, you are just, um, replicating what you did in class. It's rote memorization. I didn't like doing that in school either. I don't like just straight up memorizing stuff. I might get so bored. But then once I started to understand Riaz as, you know, this is your own time, one-on-one to commune with dance in a way that brings you meaning. It really changed it for me. Mm. Um, Also to see it as you know, this is a time for you to contemplate on your goals as a dancer. And when you figure out what those goals are, to put time into how you will get there. So what, for example, when I was um, around 18 or, or, I don't know, around that age, maybe in college, I was not too good at um, I was kind of like, I don't know, slow at them, but I had sloppy chunkers. And and is that you being critical of yourself or you actually think you are sloppy chuckers? Like? Um, it's kind of, I think I was overcritical, but also when I would yeah. do my uh, dance exam, we would have, we used to have dance exams. I don't know if we right, right, right. then they would always be like, Oh, you need to work on your chuckers. So okay. <laughs> um, they weren't that great, but um, I was like, okay, I want to work on them. But then doing practice of them, I just felt kind of like bored and I didn't know what I was doing. And I was just not too excited about it. But then when I thought, um, you know, what is my goal as a dancer or what what is exciting about this to me? I remember, um, you know, watching performances of other great dancers also really helped me in this journey. And I remember I had seen a, another dance company and I honestly don't remember who they are, but they're located in, I think, upstate New York um, and how clean that their, their choreography looked. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to do that. And so Riaz became exciting to me again because. It wasn't just doing chakras for the sake of chakras. It was doing chakras for the sake of being like the polished and professional dancer I wanted to be. Hmm. So in my Riaz time, yeah, I do the sort of normal stuff like tatkar and chakras practice and maybe expressions, things like that. But I only do things when I feel like this brings me meaning because it's bringing me to a place that mm-hmm. I'm so excited to get to. Okay. Hmm. That's a lot to think about, but <laughs> good stuff. Because I guess, yeah, on that note, yeah, my, my complaint with Chakras is that <laughs> like, there isn't a slow way to practice them. Like I end up doing Kratkar more because you can go at 40, 50, like a glacial speed and still yeah. get it. But with chakras, if you don't, like for me at least, right, and where I'm at right now, if I don't go at a certain speed, like I'll be flopping all over the place because I have to maintain my frame this whole time. Yeah. So there's, no way to do it, like, there's probably is a way to do it slow, but it seems like it's harder to do it slow, which is like strange. It is. It is. Yeah. So, it's harder to do it slow. Yeah. As a result of which, like my, my footwork is on a very different level than my chakras. So I'm kind of like balancing out now. That's, so that's normal. Like, that's normal. And also I think you'll find a way to... um kind of like supplement your uh, other parts of what make up a chakra. So for example, to do a proper chakra, you need to work on your balance, your Mm -hmm. core strength, your leg strength. And um, like, it also has a lot to do with your breathing. So actually, once you work on those things separately as well, uh, they won't be as torturous. 
you're gonna feel like a beautiful swan also flying. <laughs> we are both swans in Rajasthan. I will say the most useful thing in my development of my chakras has literally been a piece of string I tie around my glasses. So then they don't fly off into into outer space every time I take a spin. Oh wow. So so you get these like rubber band, you you get these like um you get these like glass like uh, your like my dad used to wear them when I was younger and I used to think they were super lame but now they're the most useful thing ever because he used to wear them at the beach so they don't fall out when he's going out <laughs> so you yeah you, you you tie them back and it like it, like secures your glasses to your head and then you can just go all out that's a good and, yes and I don't want to wear contact lenses every time and like poke my eye just to do yeah so it was like didn't work yeah, I technically have to wear glasses um, to see far, but okay. um, it's okay for me to dance without them. But actually, okay. it helps me on stage because I can't see the audience members' faces that clearly So without my glasses. So when I don't wear my glasses and I perform, which is always, I okay. don't have to feel nervous about if people are reacting the way I want or not because I can't even see them. Interesting. <laughs> That's funny. So, so I guess coming, uh, like as, as you wind down, coming kind of coming to my last question here. So when it comes to say, uh, so now like we've kind of, we kind of know where you came from, what you're doing right now, what you like to work on. So when it comes to Kathak, what is the impact you want to leave? What would you like your legacy to be? I love this question. <laughs> so I... Okay, one is I love the work I am doing with Barkha Patel. She is now one of my closest friends. And mm -hmm. uh, our, our project that we've been working on of um, a New York Kathak meetup has been so fulfilling because the way her and I see it is um, not only is this a way to build community and the importance of Riyaz, but also for us to fill any gaps in what Kathak dancers want, but are not getting from their traditional Kathak education. Mm -hmm. um, so I want my legacy to be one where I am helping people not only like supplement their practice as Kathak dancers, but seeing themselves and their art as part of who they are as a whole person. And um, just developing, developing people as whole human beings. Um, I feel that the potential of our art form is one where it is a place of such strong personal transformation, like in developing yourself as a Kathak artist, even as uh, you know, Karnatic or Hindustani vocalist or a uh, tabla player. Like I think our South Asian arts at the core can be such a, a place of personal and spiritual transformation. So I want to open up more people to that reality. Mm -hmm. um, and also I really like, so as I told you, I studied um, Sanskrit and Hindi and Urdu literature. Um, I, and also I love Tagore, like, I am obsessed with him. So and so I also like doing work that has to do with like dramaturgy and helping dancers develop kind of like the literary side of their dance. So I think I want to help more dancers or like contribute more in that way. And um, I also want to, hmm, when I see myself as a dancer, I also feel like it's a place where I have been able to see myself in love 
like as a, a person who is uh, loved and loves other people, um, I mean that kind of, I do mean it honestly in a romantic way. Like when I think of the way, the impact that courtesans have had on Kathak, which is like to be able to use Kathak as a way to explore your sexuality, which is a lot of part of my work as a therapist as well. Right. Um, and as a romantic being and as someone who is like worthy of loving and being loved, like Kathak is such a big part of that. Um, but also like, I think again, as dancers, we use our dance form to spread joy and to make other people just be aware of how they're feeling. And I want my dance to be that for other people. Mm. <laughs> okay. Again, just collecting everything. Sure. Thinking about it for a second. I don't have any follow-up comments on that one because that's just like it's a good, oh. good way to end that one. And <laughs> yeah, but I just want to need a minute to think about it. But yeah, on that note, I want to bring that this episode to a conclusion. Sarikadi, thanks a lot for joining. Yeah, it's it's been fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. On the pod. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>